The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Now, Exo-Ordinary Mind Facts. In 1997, 14-year-old Nathan Zona got 43 out of 59th graders to vote in favor of banning dihydrogen monoxide, also known as water. The hoax was a science fair project, which he titled, How Gullible Are We? He not only won the science fair, but also inspired the term, Zonerism. Defined as, the use of a fact, to lead to a scientifically ignorant public, to a false conclusion. And that was, Exo-Ordinary Mind Facts. Now, on to this week's Veritas interview. I'm Exo. Good night. Thomas Huxley once said, quote, The question of questions for mankind, the problem which underlies all others, and which is more deeply interesting than any other, is the ascertainment of the place which man occupies in nature, and of his relations to the universe of things." Quote. Einstein believed that matter must arise from a simple set of physical dynamics. So did many of the classic ancient creation traditions, such as the Buddhist and Hindu traditions in India, the Kabbalist tradition of Judaism, and the Dogon and Egyptian creation traditions of Africa priests of the modern-day Dogon tribe of Mali point to a set of primordial processes of matter that go well beyond what modern popularizers of physics typically discuss. Techniques of comparative cosmology help us to align those processes with likely scientific counterparts based on a consensus of ancient views, which revealed our new and compelling perspectives on how our universe is said to interact with a non-material twin universe. How the dimensions of time and space are understood to emerge from non-materiality, and how these seemingly scientific archaic concepts formed an enduring foundation for ancient and modern religion. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Today's special guest is Laird Scranton, the author of a series of books and other writings on ancient cosmology and language. These include articles published in several international publications. He has been featured in documentaries and is a frequent guest on the best radio programs around the world. And we have a more extensive bio listing his work right on our website. Tonight, we'll be discussing his latest book titled Seeking the Primordial, Exploring Root Concepts of Cosmological Creation. Laird Granton joins us directly from Albany, New York. Hello, Laird, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. Thank you very much for, for inviting me on. Well, I was mentioning before, we met in 2011 at Walter Cottenden's uh, event at CPAC, right, in, in Sedona, 2011. And I've been wanting to interview for quite a while. Every time I want to do it, Boom, a new book comes out. You are a researcher of researchers. First of all, how did you begin in all of this? Well, this happened sort of accidentally. Um, I was uh, 
given a book, recommended a book by my wife, Risa, who had, uh, it was called Unexplained by Jerome Clark. And every chapter in the book talked about some mystery of, of human interest that had not been solved. And one of the mysteries was about an, a modern African tribe, a prim, primitive tribe called the Dogen, who seemed to know some things about astronomy that they shouldn't know without access to telescopes and technological equipment. And so I just started pursuing that. I thought it was interesting, and I started researching it and keeping uh, notes and uh and details for myself, just to try, trying to keep them straight, keep them organized, and sort of ended up accidentally writing a book, <laughs> and uh, decided back. This is back in the mid 1990s. I um, it was possible to self-publish a book pretty inexpensively, so I decided to do, to do that. And then the book found John Anthony West, uh, the Egyptologist. Oh yeah. <clears throat> and from there, um, he sort of was my conduit into publishing and into conferences and so forth. He was a great man. We unfortunately lost him recently, but I'm glad that he, as you know, had cancer, but uh, he he fought that for some time. And I uh, was in touch with his daughter recently. And, you know, what a great man that was, wasn't he? Yes, absolutely. They broke, broke the mold uh, when they, um, when John was born, you know, he was one of a kind. Um, he's sort of the grand old man of the mysteries tradition. He was the renegade person. He uh, he did not want to follow academia to the point he did his own research. And those people who went to his tours in Egypt really, really had a, a time of a lifetime. Yes, it was a life-changing experience for so many people. Um, I, I meet people all the time who say, you know, going with John to Egypt was really changed my perspective on the world. Absolutely. So tonight we'll be discussing your latest book, Seeking the Primordial, Exploring Root Concepts of Cosmological Creation. So let me quote the following as a start for for our discussion, Laird. Quote, in accordance with the views of numerous ancient societies, if we allow a perspective that a designed system of scientific cosmology was instructed in ancient times, then we realize that it must have been carefully aimed at some future audience that would be equipped to recognize its scientific contours, unquote. Let's dissect this. Are you saying the ancient ones wanted to leave a legacy for us to comprehend? Uh, to understand the perspective, we can't really rely on any one culture, and so I do comparative studies. Um, the The outlook in several of the, the traditions is that this uh, – Ancient symbolic system was an instructed tradition with two purposes. It had had two facets to it. On one hand, it was a an instructed civilizing plan whose main purpose was to raise us up for humanity up from hunter gatherers to farmers, and that civilizing plan was tagged to a symbolic cosmology that talks about how processes of creation happen. And when we say processes of creation, um, in the mindset of the ancient tradition, they're talking about three things at the same time. They're talking about um, how the universe forms, how matter forms, and how the processes of biological reproduction happen. Those processes are parallel for the Dogen. Uh, they're, they're so similar to one another that they simultaneously describe all three processes using a single progression of symbols. And so every symbol has meaning for each of those three themes, which is part of why the symbolism is so complicated. And I'm glad you're comparing 
different civilizations because that that gives you a better perspective and you can find some common ground that you've well, obviously you have found some commonalities between you know the buddhists the egyptians the uh and the dogon have you found a lot of similarities between their cosmology uh the dogon are actually an excellent place to start because um first of all they're a living cr- culture which means that an anthropologist can talk to a living Dogen priest and get modern perspectives on on certain questions. Um, but their culture preserves elements of, of three ancient traditions. They have um, rituals like Judea, ancient Judaism. They have civic traditions like ancient Egypt. And they have a symbolic cosmology a, a lot like ancient Buddhism. And so under one umbrella, you have elements of all three of those traditions, which suggested to me that, you know, all three came from a single place. And part of my work has been – my field of study is called comparative cosmology. And what that means is that I try to understand uh, more about symbols and myths and rituals by comparing how different cultures understood the same elements. So – um, the Dogen will tell me that a particular symbol represents a certain thing. My job is to go to other ancient cultures who have that same element, the same symbol, and validate that they, those cultures understood the symbol in the same way. And I sort of then triangulate in on what an original meaning was for each aspect. I think when I first met you, you were discussing the Dogon, and it really fascinated me. I interviewed some members of the, or initiates rather, of the Dogon tribe, and I remember they used to get uh, they get upset and correct me if I'm wrong. But when people say the pyramids must have been built by extraterrestrials, and they get really <laughs> upset, saying, "Why couldn't human beings do that?" Is that still the standing? Um, yes, the Dogon really really don't um, uh, have a, a connection to the building of the pyramids, although they do have a similar tradition. They do place large stones on a plateau to represent stars, including uh, the belt stars of Orion, which is what my friend Robert Boval says the three pyramids of Giza represent. Right. Uh, the Dogans say that the reason why they do that, uh, especially as regards the belt stars, is to point us to a structure they call the chariot of Orion. Now, uh, the French anthropologist who studied the Dogon imagined that the concept of the chariot of Orion applies to the whole constellation as a reference to the Orion the hunter. But um, when you trace Dogen references, um, you discover that there is an invisible, uh, a faintly visible structure uh, that surrounds the belt stars. It's so faint that you can't see it with the the naked eye. Um, It's a spiraling birthplace of stars called Barnard's Loop. And it can be imaged with time-lapse photography. And when it's imaged, um, it gives the appearance of the wheel of a chariot in which Orion the hunter is standing. Now, the interesting thing is that the dimensions of Barnard's loop in light years are a match for the dimensions of the Great Pyramid in cubits. They, uh, the, the Great Pyramid measures 440 royal cubits per side of its base, and it measures 280 cubits high. Those are the same dimensions in light years for Barnard's Loop. Um, there are, are other uh, Dogen and Egyptian connections that point us to it. The Dogen say that why that structure is so important is because 
it's a macrocosmic counterpart to a tiny spiral of matter that is the structure that all of material creation is based on. So they, the Dogen provide very detailed descriptions of their tiny spiral. And if you go to a scientific description of Barnard's loop, Barnard's loop is classified as a stellar bubble. And the way it forms and the way it behaves, the things it's expected to do, line right up with what the Dogen say their tiny spiral of matter does. And so it's a way of demonstrating that what happens above is the same as what happens below. I think it was my conversation with Graham Hancock. I'm not sure exactly, but I believe he mentioned that the the Dogon priests, they maintain a mode of, of dress similar to that of the ancient Egyptian priests, and they still make use of many of the same agricultural methods that were practiced in, in ancient Egypt. Could they have been attached to to Egypt during the time of the pyramids and perhaps I don't know if it was after the cataclysm or what happened there, but they actually emigrated to what's now Mali? Yes, my my outlook on it is a little more complicated than that, but essentially the Dogen, I see that the Dogen were, Dogen and Egyptians were the same people at 3000 BC, Mm -hmm. at about the boundary between pre-dynastic and dynastic times. Um, The uh, Dogen as a society prioritize preserving original forms. They're trying not, they're trying to be sort of a controlled um, uh, environment uh, for civic traditions and for language and for symbols and for just all aspects of their society, including agriculture and other things. Their mission as a culture is to try to preserve the things in the original form they were in. Um, Now, the the path of transmission for the tradition is, is fairly complicated. It, uh, from my point of view, it begins um, in Turkey at around 10,000 BC. We see it first at Gobekli Tepe in southeast Turkey. And we can imagine that there must have been direct influences on Egypt at around 10,000 BC. If we, if we entertain Robert Boval's idea that the, belts, the pyramids point to the belt stars of Orion at 10,000 BC – and that the Sphinx points to the constellation of Leo at 10,000 BC, then we're left with two choices. We can either conclude that at least those alignments were made in the era of 10,000 BC. If we don't accept that, then we have to presume that somebody in some later era had the capability of retroactively, retrospectively calculating what the alignment should have been. And that's... uh, we don't really have evidence that anybody had that much technology to be able to do that. So it looks to me as if at least those alignments were made in 10,000 BC, which implies contact between Gobekli Tepe and Egypt at 10,000 BC. Then we have a path of transmission for the the creation tradition that I'm pursuing that, that seems to pass down um, from the Fertile Crescent region um, into India – and then down into Elephantine in Egypt, or re-enters e- Egypt at Elephantine around 4000 BC. And there's another path of transmission that seems to pass down from the Fertile Crescent into, into Palestine, and then moves by sea to the tip of North Africa, and then on to northern Scotland, to an island called Orkney Island, uh, where it looks as if there was an instructional site uh, of the kind the Dogen described at around 
3200 BC, just before dynastic Egypt appeared. So it looks like we have these three different paths of transmission that influence Egypt, which is another reason why it's so hard to sort out the details of symbolism in Egypt. But as you said, the Dogon still an active tribe. Let me just read this too, because I think it's in, it's important. And it says, so the Dogon are remotely located, effectively distanced from corrupting outside influences. Their tribal ethic emphasizes purity of language and preservation of original traditions and themes. So why is their cosmology so relevant today? The Dogon priests say that their symbolic system describes how matter forms. This isn't a situation where I or some other researcher has come along and noticed resemblances between their drawings and certain diagrams and said, oh, look, they're talking about matter. This is a case where the Dogon priests are flatly saying, we're describing how matter forms. This is what our system does. So when I was starting my research, I didn't know very much about how matter forms. I knew about atoms, and I knew about protons and electrons and neutrons. And I could see that not only did the Dogon have the descriptions of those things correct, they also had a correct drawing to go with their concept of protons, electrons, and neutrons that looks just like a typical electron orbital shape. So I asked myself, if they have these two topmost structures right, what are the chances that the descending structure that they're describing for matter could also be right? And so I started educating myself about how matter forms. I was reading Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene, you know, popularizers of science, who talk about um, how matter forms. And I started comparing um, descriptions and drawings to, uh, of the Dogon to descriptions and diagrams from Hawking and Greene and other uh, physicists and discovered that you could set these things side by side. As a matter of fact, that's what my first book does. It sets Dogen descriptions and drawings side by side with scientific descriptions and diagrams. And you can see that you could almost substitute the Dogen description for the scientific description and not change the meaning of what Hawking or Brian Green had written. I'm looking here at uh, Carmen Bolter's, Dr. Cameron Bolter's, I know you know her, her work, sure. and I remember... I think it was Abdel Hakim, I went uh, one that the uh, he was part of the documentary. He's a, a researcher from Egypt who passed away not too long ago. Was that am I saying his name right, Hakim? Uh yes, Hakim. Right, and I'm looking at the Dogon, and I'm thinking right now you and I could fly to Mali, organize perhaps a meeting with a Dogon tribe member, and we could actually look into their past, and they, as, as I said in my quote, they're very peculiar, and they emphasize purity of language and preservation of the original traditions. But if you do the same thing in Egypt, we would need somebody like Hakim to discuss this. However, the Dogon, how is it that they keep their traditions almost intact? Could it be by initiation? We don't see the same thing with Egyptians. In fact, some people speculate that the Egyptians of today are not the ones behind the creation or the building of the pyramids. Your take on this? Um, there are a lot of mysteries about the, the building of the pyramids and about the, the ultimate purposes of the pyramid. The Dogen um, symbolic system 
uh, the grand symbol of the Dogen symbolic system is a shrine. It's a ritual shrine that is aligned to north, south, east, and west. And it's a symbolic and a, and a structural match, at least in terms of the base plan, for a Buddhist stupa shrine. Um, and the Buddhist stupa shrine goes along with a symbolic cosmology that's also a match, for a close mass match for the Dogen. So the Dogen uh, shrine, which is called, a, it represents a granary because we're talking about agriculture uh, being represented here. The granary has many of the same features as a pyramid. It, it opens up two-thirds of the way up the north side the way the Great Pyramid does. Um, the difference is the Dogen Shrine has a circular base and a squared roof, which produces four flat sides. Uh, each of the four flat sides are associated with um, uh, star groups that regulate agriculture. But the symbolism of the shrine in many cases is the same as we see in Egypt and other places. Um, it can represent a woman lying on her back. And so the shrine sits as the, the womb, her expanded womb, if she was um, pregnant. Um, have Many of the words and many of the concepts that apply to the shrine are the same words and concepts that apply to the Egyptian pyramid. In fact, a large percentage of the Dogen cosmological words are ancient Egyptian words. It's just the Dogen don't have a written language. They only have a spoken language. And so we can compare. That's one of the cross-checks that I do on meaning to demonstrate that Dogen meanings haven't changed, is I can take a definition the Dogen give for a word and go to an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary and find the same word pronounced the same way with the same definitions. Um, this is predictively true. I mean, there are literally hundreds of Dogen words that are a match for ancient Egyptian words. Now, the Egyptian words give us a certain advantage because the traditional viewpoint on Egyptian hieroglyphic words is that each of the symbols represented a phonetic value, the same way letters of the English alphabet do. One difficulty with that view is that in any written language, there are only about 40 phonetic values you're trying to represent, and the, Do and the Egyptians have more than 4,000 glyphs. So it, immediately a question arises, if these were supposed to be phonetic, why did they need so many glyphs, to, you know, 4,000 glyphs to represent four, 40 sounds? So I started comparing. There are some 30 shapes of Dogon drawings that are a close match for Egyptian glyph shapes and where the Dogen symbolism aligns with what the, what um, Egyptologists tell us, tells us is the symbolism for the glyph. And so I started looking at words that were written with those glyphs to try to get a better sense of how the written language worked. Um, if I had had perfect knowledge, I would have begun with an Egyptian word for the concept of a week, um, like seven days of a week. Although the Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian word is written with two glyphs. The first glyph is a circle with a dot, which is the Egyptian sun glyph. It can represent the concept of a day. And the second glyph is an upside-down U shape that was the Egyptian number 10. And so I looked at that word, and I said, symbolically, this word says to me, 10 days. And I did some research, and I discovered the ancient Egyptians had a 10-day week. Well, not only was the Egyptian 
hieroglyphic word for week formulated that way. There's an ancient Chinese word for week that's formulated precisely the same way, using a sun glyph, which was originally round with a dot, and the Chinese number 10, and the Chinese had a 10-day week. So we have, based on that single word, we have fundamental comparability between the ancient Chinese hieroglyphs and the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And what we learn from the word is it looks as if the symbols um, are not just phonetic, they're also conceptual, and that when we substitute concepts for glyphs, we define the meaning of the word. And so I started exploring other Egyptian words to see if that could be true with any other word. And as it turns out, every word works that way. If you know the right concepts to associate with a glyph, an Egyptian glyph, the glyphs of the word explain to you the nuances of meaning of the word. You don't have to guess. You have it on the authority of the Egyptian hieroglyphic language, what they meant when they said a certain thing. Which is easier to understand, no matter what language you speak. Right. And so I can use those definitions, which have better nuance than some of the Dogen definitions do, to cross-check what the Dogen are telling me about words. I not only have the same word pronounced the same way that has the same basic meaning, the Egyptian word gives me the nuances of what they were talking about. Um, that That's a little hard to explain, but you understand that if you're dealing with any kind of a complicated concept, there's more than one perspective on what the thing is. And so if the Egyptians have five different words for the same thing, um, each word is giving us a slightly different nuance of meaning a different perspective on meaning for what that concept is about. Well, multiple perspectives, absolutely. It's like uh, if you and I saw a a rocket 500 years ago, we probably would say, oh, that's a large pencil because we wouldn't know what it is, right? Right. But take the, just a quick parenthesis, take the Temple of Abydos, for example. If you were to take a member of the Dogon tribe with you to the Temple of Abydos, what do you think they would say about the the hieroglyphs that look like a helicopter, a plane, a rocket ship, what would they say about that? I'm not sure what they would they would uh, be able to make of it because the Dogen um, deliberately never adopted a written language. Now, at first I thought it was simply because of timing that the Dogen separated from the Egyptians just before written language appeared in ancient Egypt. And so they never had the opportunity to acquire the language. But that's not the case. The truth of the matter is that Dogen see written language as an inferior way to, to convey meaning and to transmit meaning. Um, and the best example I can give you is imagine some artistic skill, say, binding a leather-bound book. Um, the Dogen say it's far preferable to learn how to do that from someone who is a master of binding books than it is to try to learn it from instructions that are written down. Um, they see written language as a system of representation. It's a way for a person who doesn't really hasn't really mastered a, a concept to represent to someone else that they have. It's a way of misrepresenting the truth. And so the Dogen never ma uh, adopted a written language, and so they are not skilled at reading Egyptian hieroglyphs. They wouldn't be. They're only out of the 4,000 glyphs, there are only a handful of the shapes that would um, immediately resonate with um, 
Yeah, the average Dogen person. person. And I bet you, Laird, that most people who listen to us deep inside, they know, they know that no matter what language they speak, they feel that uttering words, it's a very limiting way of communicating. And I don't mean to bring the ET or extraterrestrial concept here, but a lot of the people that I've interviewed who have been abducted of who have, you know, experiences, they have a common a commonality. They say they have been presented, whether it's uh, ET presenting what the future would look like if we don't take care of our planet. A concept can give them thousands of words. They can get an entire book just by looking at a picture. Do you think this was the way ancient cultures communicated? I think symbolism is a method of communicating that is very closely related to the non-material. Uh, it's hard to explain without uh, a broader foundation. Um, there's the Dogen um, conception of things is that reality uh, takes its permanent form on the non-material side. Universes form in pairs, non-material and material. And that what the Dogen referred to as the seeds of reality, the essential part, are permanently resides on the non-material side, not the material side. Isn't that duality, what they're referring to? Um, yes, that's, that's a way of looking at the concept of duality. But there's a dynamic between the two universes that's, it's a, that's inherent. There's a translational dynamic. The best way to explain it is what happens to white light when you shine it through a crystal and it produces seven colors of a rainbow. That at the boundary between the non-material and the material, there is an inherent translation process that happens. And so um, one of the things that happens with cosmological concepts is that for any cosmological term in the Dogen language, we don't have a, just a single definition. We have a cluster of different meanings, of discrete meanings that are so different from one another that knowing one of the meanings doesn't allow you to guess the others. Um, to give you an example, their hidden god, whose name is Ama, the name Ama also can mean to grasp or to hold firm or to establish. If you go to Egypt, the hidden god Amen, his name also means, can also mean to grasp or to hold firm or to establish. If you go to Hebrew, the word Amen that we see at the end of a Hebrew prayer comes from a root that means to establish. These clusters of meanings hold true across cult the boundaries of cultures and across the boundaries of even very different languages because the meanings don't float with the phonetic value. They float with the concept. So if I went to Sanskrit, um, which is very different from the Dogen language or the, the Egyptian hieroglyphic language, and um, examine a, a, a cosmological term, I'll find that it's pronounced like a number of other words whose meanings line up with the Egyptian meanings and the Dogen meanings. These clusters hold together. They hold true. Um, that's a dynamic that I associate with translation from the non-material to the material, and that implies to me that the original concept lives on the non-material side and that what the Dogen are expressing is a translated version of a non-material concept. So symbolism works the same way, that um, any given Egyptian symbol, any glyph that they have, can represent a number, a cluster of different meanings, not just one. The, the sun glyph was an example we were talking about that can represent the sun, but it can also represent the concept of a day 
and it's also found in words um, whose meanings um, relate to concepts of time. Um, we'll find when we get down into studying uh, energetics of matter that that circular shape with a dot in the middle of it is a diagram of something called angular momentum. It's a diagram of spinning energy, which is one of the building blocks of the creational dynamics. Um, so this cluster concept applies to the glyphs as well as to the words. Um, and that's part of what makes the glyphs hard to understand because um, coming into examining a word, you have to be aware of the fact that the glyph you're looking at might have different meanings depending on the context. Um, the shape of a hemisphere, for example, if we're talking about biological reproduction, a hemisphere is symbolic of the expanded womb of a mother. If we're talking about how matter forms, it's symbolic of the expansion of mass that happens as ma as matter is formed. Let me go back to what I mentioned before, how they get upset, the Dogon get upset when you mention E.T. as the creators of the pyramids. And I'm with them, by the way. I really think that at one point in our in our past, perhaps many times, many times, we had more advanced technology perhaps millions of years ago, and something happened, a cataclysm or something happened that we had to start all over again. But if they're so certain that it was humans who created the pyramids, what happened to that knowledge? Larry? Right. Right. And also, if you imagine, we all understand um, how technology has changed over the span of even 5,000 years. Even 100 years. Right. But... Even looking back as far as 5,000 years, we understand that pretty much everything that has been developed in societies today, and my friend John Anthony West would be the first one to say that it's a mistake to look at that as a linear progression. Correct. Exactly. Um, but even over a span of 5,000 years, you should be able to go from donkeys and carts to what we see today technologically. Now, how many opportunities have there been over the lifespan of humanity to have a 5,000-year period of time where that might have happened. And it's, um, it, it makes sense to me that it should have happened before. If a hum humanity hasn't changed, our capacity to think hasn't changed, left on their own, humans should have developed technology um, many times before. Exactly. If I uh, remember my conversation with Edgar Mitchell when he said, my Grandparents came in horse and buggy to the West, and I stepped on the moon. Well, that, <laughs> yes. In what, 66 years, I think it was. Yes. So if you go back um, 100,000 years ago, what tells you that we didn't have that technology? But the question is, what happened that that knowledge, was it sequestered? Did it disappear? If something were to happen today, a cataclysm happens today. And let's say you and I are the creators of computers, but you and I passed away, but there's a few survivors all they're going to see is plastics. So they'll call us the plastic people. They'll find a few smartphones and they think, well, these are probably coffee holders. You see what I mean? We have yeah. to start all over again. Why do we discount the fact that these people may have had technology? And instead of all of us evolving technology-wise, we have de-evolved. Right. And um, I, can, uh, I agree with the perspective that it is likely to have been a very up-and-down history for technology. Um, there are, it's certainly true that with certain scientific concepts, the ancients had a much clearer sense of the truth of things than we do. 
Um, now, the Dogen and the Buddhists say the reason that is is because they learned it from somebody who already understood it. The Dogen are not claiming to have developed, developed the technology or the understanding of how matter forms themselves. They see themselves as the care te- caretakers, the, the keepers of an instructed tradition that was not given as theory. It wasn't someone saying, here's how we think matter was formed. It was given as fact. It was given in the form of, here's, here's how it happens. And this is important enough information that you need to keep this straight, and you need to find a way to pass it on to future generations that keeps it straight. Now, with I'm in the fortunate position that between the Dogen and the Buddhists, we have two traditions that are given in very different languages. They're both uh, documented to be ancient. Uh, they're, uh, the Buddhist system was documented by a, in writing by around 400 BC. Um, the Dogen system is given in words that went out of use around 750 BC. And their um, society preserves traditions that are 5,000 years old. So we know that both traditions are old. We know that because they're in different languages, one didn't just adopt it wholesale from the other. And so what that implies is that they were both able to keep the intimate details of this symbolic tradition straight for thousands of years down to the present day. If you were to talk to a modern-day authority on Buddhism, he'd be in agreement about most subjects with what a Dogen priest says in the modern day. And that demonstrates that neither tradition has changed significantly. There hasn't been a whole lot of... um, morphing of meanings or morphing of symbols that they're, they still align with each other today, which means neither one of them has changed much, very substantially. The Dogen or the, the Buddhists flatly say they receive, uh, let's see, their, their most sacred symbols were gifted to humanity by a non-human source. The Dogen agree with that, but they take it a step further. They say not only was it a non-human source, but originally it was a non-material source. And part of what I do with the book Seeking the Primordial is I lay a foundation for how that's thinkable that somewhere in ancient times we were able to receive instruction. The Dogen say it happened, actually both the Dogen and the Buddhists say it happened in a material frame. This is not a shamanic dream that a priest had, that there was actual real-world instruction in a physical mode that they're saying occurred thousands of years ago, and they're in agreement about that. And I want to discuss more of this later because I have a question that I want to ask you about this very topic. Uh, They say that it's a a non-material world, but I want to know, is it the uh, ayahuasca or something else? But I'll leave that for later. I'm thinking of something that I saw a few years ago. Pyramids in Mexico, Egypt, and Indonesia, 2650 BCE for Mexico, 3150 for Egypt, 2850 for Indonesia. Three different places, three different pyramids, but they share three doors, the triptych. Obviously, there's got some commonality. They had some commonality in the way they built them. Something or someone must have passed that knowledge to the architect of these monuments. Where, who? Well, the first the first we see of of that is at Gobekli Tepe. You might be familiar with sure, it. sure. At Gobekli Tepe, what we see are um, a series of stone circles, essentially standing stone pillars, megalithic stones, um, with beautiful carved images on them. 
um, with the enclosures and benches that are that surround them. Um, and on the pillars, in some cases, are images of animals. In other cases, they are enigmatic symbols that um, we're not always certain what the symbol represents. One of the sets of symbols that appears on one of these uh, pillars looks like the shape of three – it's just sometimes described as three handbags. It looks like a, a circular handle on top with a squared bag hanging beneath it, but there are three of them. Now, in the archaic symbolism that is part of this tradition, the non-material is associated with the geometric form of a circle, which is unity. The material universe is associated with the geometric, geometric square, which has four sides, same way we have four dimensions. Um, the concept of a sanctuary is the place where the non-material and the material come together. And so to represent that symbolically, you have to find a way to reconcile the figure of a circle with a figure of a square. This is the concept of squaring a circle, which is familiar to a lot of uh, ancient cultures. On the Gobekli Tepe pillar, we have essentially a hemisphere on top and a square beneath. It reconciles the two shapes together. Um, symbolically, that says to me that this was a sanctuary or a temple because it's the place where non-material material is thought to come together. In ancient times, three hemispheres or three domes were symbolic of a temple, a, tem a form of temple called a chaitya, which is in uh, the area of Iraq, the Fertile Crescent region. Um, they were characterized by three domes. My friend John Anthony West uh, had argued, well, no, these these um, three dome shapes represent the concept of a house. And I was of the opinion it represented the concept of a sanctuary. And um, that disagreement led me to do research. I, I respected John's outlook on things enough to know that he didn't um, – he didn't make a statement about symbolism if he he couldn't back it up. He had done careful research. He knew there was a reason to think that it represented a house. So I did further research. I took that as a sign that I just had not researched things deeply enough. There had to be an umbrella perspective over both viewpoints. Turns out there was. Uh, the symbol represent, can represent both the concept of a house or the concept of a sanctuary. Um, the concept of a house is actually very pivotal uh, to symbolism of the tradition. I, I won't go into it all right now, but we see it uh, that burial sites in Egypt traditionally represented houses. And um, uh, even the uh, Temple of Man at Luxor um, has symbolism that pertains to a house. Um, it's a very important concept. So these um, these dome shapes, um, I say, are, are the the concept of the triptych that you were talking about traces itself back as far as the beginning of the tradition, at least as far as I can trace it, which is go back to Tepe. That's not to say the tradition doesn't go back further than that, but the Ice Age um, is an effective block to evidence. Uh, it's very hard to demonstrate anything. It's very hard to anchor an interpretation going back further than the end of the Ice Age because all of the evidence has been wiped clean. Even with ice core samples? With ice core samples, sometimes you can. Uh, you, there are certain arguments you can make about ice core samples, but with the kind of symbolism I'm talking about, um, we're, we're not expecting to be able to find um, a surviving um, 
sanctuary site like Gobekli Tepe that's older than um, the Ice Age. It's possible we will. But the Ice Age creates a huge new obstacle to, to being able to identify and date properly date um, a site and uh, to connect it to any particular culture. There are a lot, a lot of difficulties if you go back farther than about 12,000 years. A lot of people think that Gobekli Tepe is the oldest ruin found, but let's not forget the stone wall of Theopetra. I mean, Gobekli Tepe is, what, 9,500 to 8,500 B.C. approximately, and Theopetra is 21,000 B.C.E. And also, let me add something that is not related to your work, but I wonder what you have to say about this, since, for example, Theopetra was possibly built as a barrier against cold winds, but then you have the... What's the name? The, the Daring Kuyu underground city in Turkey that could shelter as many as 20,000 people. And again, we go back to what I was saying before, the possible cataclysm that could be responsible for eradicating all this knowledge that we had at one point and starting again. Do you think there's a correlation between all these places and the Daring Kuyu underground city? I think the underground city definitely indicates that there would have had to have been an intense motive to have created an underground city that way. The amount of effort it would have taken um, was enormously greater than people trying to live above the surface. We can only imagine they went below the surface because they had to, and that implies there were conditions that were unlivable above the surface. And to a death that could protect them from radiation. Right. Radiation or, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know what the situation was above ground that forced them down, that radiation is, seems like a, it could be a likely one. Um, we certainly have indications that there were was civilization before go back to Tepe. Um, we just don't don't have an easy way to anchor um, to connect that and to anchor that to what we're seeing after um, the end of the Ice Age. Um, one thing we can say about the uh, Egyptian pyramids, there. Um, the shrines I was talking about, the Stupa Shrine and the Dogon Granary Shrine, the, they begin with the same base plan and they evoke a series of shapes, the same series of shapes in the same sequence with the same symbolism. But the Dogon Granary culminates with a round base and a squared roof. And a Stupa, Buddhist Stupa, culminates with a squared base and a rounded roof. These to my way of thinking, are consistent with a whole range of symbolic reversals we see about midway through the tradition from 12,000 BC coming forward to now. About halfway through the tradition, we start seeing certain consistent reversals in symbolism happening across cultures all around the world at around the same time, uh, cultures that were not known to be in contact with each other. Um, the obvious one is matriarchy being supplanted by patriarchy. Um, but another one is symbolism of these these geometric shapes that in ancient and archaic times, the circle was symbolic of the earth. In more recent ancient times, it was sim a square was symbolic of the earth. So because the Dogon granary has a squared base that sits on the earth, the suggestion is that the form is an archaic form, that this is a form that dates before halfway through the, the cycle, that is 12,000 years is actually a half cycle if we're talking about a yuga, a yuga cycle, and that 
the Buddhist stupa, which has the squared base, dates from after you know, the second half of that cycle. And so we look at the Great Pyramid, and we see the other pyramids at Giza, and we see they have squared bases. I conclude from that symbolically that those structures pertain to the second half of a cycle. And my friend John Anthony West would say, we can't say with certainty which cycle. It might not have been the current cycle we're in, but we can say that because of the form of the structure that they were built during the second half of a cycle. And that means that if they were built in the second half of our cycle, that sometime after around 3600 BC is when we would have expected to see that symbolism used in the in architecture like the pyramid. You mentioned some symbolism that also appears in China. And of course, we're told in modern history books that we're not in touch with, the, with these cultures are not in touch with one another. But then again, you've heard about the red-haired mummies that have been found in China. And yes. the fact that some of these pyramids there, they pay farmers. The Chinese government pays farmers to farm on top of them because they don't want people to find out that another a non-Sino culture lived in that era or, or was in that era before them. What's your take on that? Well, um, I've written a book about China's cosmology, and one of the the really telling connections to the traditions I'm studying, tradition I'm studying, the um, there was an ancient plan for agriculture in China called the Wellfield Plan, and the Wellfield Plan involved it was a way of dividing up square plots of land and assigning them to different families to to um, uh, cultivate crops on. Uh, with the central square representing a well that they all shared to water their crops. Well, in, in, some um, academics consider that to have only been a theoretical plan in China, even though there are some examples of it. But in Dogen culture, it was the actual. It's it's uh, still is the actual um, agricultural plan that's implemented and in use. So the Dogen have a system of agriculture that's fund fundamentally similar to the system of agriculture that is at least represented in theory in China. Um, that can't be through non no contact. They must have had some common connection. Um, now, the possibility of there being uh, other groups in China before um, the modern Asians um, – if we're talking about humanity going back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, it seems perfectly reasonable that at some point in over that period of time that other groups uh, lived in regions where um, we live now and might not be the same group. Um, I can't say with certainty for China that that was the truth, but it doesn't surprise me at all to think that it would have been that way. Well, there's also some information that the Chinese at one point, hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, were in the Americas. And apparently some native chiefs have ornaments given to them, not only by the Chinese, but Vikings and some others. Why is it that modern, modern history books don't talk about this? And they just venerate Columbus as the person who, quote unquote, discovered America. <laughs> yes. Well, this is... This comes out of vested interests, you know, that uh, <laughs> right. professionals and um, politicians have in a certain viewpoint that um, elevates their culture or elevates their um, religion or their way of doing things. Um, and it's it's hard to, to work around that. We see it everywhere. There are certain subjects that are taboo uh, in 
I wrote a book about New Zealand, and it's very controversial there to suggest um, that reports of pygmies in New Zealand before the Maori were there. Um, you talk about those subjects, and uh, you step in, into really uh, controversial areas in terms of in relation to how the academics see it. Or the but little you, people in Indonesia, the homofluorescences. That's right. And those we have actual documented evidence of. <laughs> but in even in the United Kingdom, uh, any discussion of of short-statured people in ancient times, it, you're stepping on sensitive ground. You're pushing buttons for academics. They don't want to hear about it. Uh, that when evidence is uncovered, there's... Uh, Alternate explanations are preferred over it actually being a short-statured, pygmy-like person. But what, what, uh, why do you think that is, if this is part of our history? Why, what, why is it jeopardizing? I, uh, <laughs> that's, that's very interesting to ask. Uh, and that is the, the question, what is it jeopardizing? And, and pursuing that question I, leads us to some of the things that my studies point to. Um, for some reason, someone doesn't want us pursuing those questions. You know what? I, we're going to take a break shortly, but you were such a plethora of information. If you don't mind, of course, I'm going to focus on the book, but I'm going to step outside and ask you other things because I think, I think you know a lot, and I want to be able to leverage a lot of this. For example, giants. There's so much information out there about giants. And, of course, there's this... I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or not. I don't have the facts, but that this Smithsonian has been hiding bones from giants and they don't want to talk about it as if giants were not past, you know, part of our history. We know about the homofluorescence of this enough evidence to prove that that was true. Same thing with giants. Why are they hiding this? Again, based on the cosmology studies that I've done, um, Pursuing those questions leads to some of the things that, that that the cosmology points to. And by blocking people from pursuing those questions, they stand in the way of some of these um, perspectives coming to light. Um, the, the book Seeking the Primordial actually does um, provide a, a perspective from which it's thinkable that there could have been giants in the past. I don't discuss giants, but there is a way of looking at things that allows for that to have been a thing, just as there's a perspective that allows for, you know, in the, some of the ancient writings, they talk about kings living for hundreds of years. Um, in you, you see that in religious texts, you see that in historical texts, and so forth. Um, there's a perspective from which that might be might have been a possible thing. It might have been possible very long ago that people could have lived for more years than we live. Not that they actually lived. It's hard to explain what the rationale is, but it's a, the same dynamic that allows for larger creatures also allows for a longer lifespan. Well, take Sedona, for example. You've been there. I've been there many times, and you see all these beautiful red rocks. And right. We really don't see that much again in our history books as to what happened there. And that's just the, the reason why it's red. It's a thin layer of iron oxide that was caused by a chemical weathering of natural minerals. But if you go to some of the tours there, they take you and they show you fish on the walls fossilized, which means that that could have been underwater at one point. Mm -hmm. 
That's true. Um, now, there are a lot of, of unanswered questions, and uh, I'm happy to be part of a group of researchers, many of whom are doing a very careful job of trying to, to find answers to some of these um, questions that, that have not been sensibly answered by academics. Which is great. How can people buy this new book and all your other books? A new book is titled Seeking the Primordial, Exploring Root Concepts of Cosmological Creation. And all your other books, and I, by the way, I have a bunch of them. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're the guy who bought them, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Me and many thousands of others. <laughs> well, um, the, uh, the books are available pretty much anywhere. Of course, you can find them on Amazon. You can find them. Uh, you'll find one or more of them on the shelves at any time in Barnes and Noble and places like that. Any bookstore can order them. Um, you can find them at my publisher's website, which is innertraditions.com. Or you can find it at simonandschuster.com, which is a parent company. Um, they're, they're available pretty much anywhere. Um, the, uh, there are nine books so far in the series. I'm working on a tenth one um, and have plans for an eleventh. So there'll be more books coming down the line if I get the time to, <laughs> to write them. I don't know how you can write books so quick, so quickly, and they're just so comprehensive, each of them. But folks, a lot more when we return with Laird Scranton. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.